Hey, Torah fans, Luke Ford here with Casey. And uh, this week's Torah portion is Chukat, which is Numbers 19 to 22. Uh, first of all, Casey, let's just uh, clear clear the air. What, what have you done for Israel this week, Casey? <laughs> uh, I watched Meet the Press this morning and okay, good, uh, good. paid my taxes, yeah. Okay. So I think it's pretty clear that in this week's Torah portion, the Jews are undocumented immigrants. And uh, do you think they have valid passports coming out of Egypt? You know, there's no way they have valid passports. You know, they, they, do you think is Egypt still considers them citizens or you know, is willing to intervene on their behalf? No way. So these are just undocumented immigrants who are seeking comprehensive immigration reform in Canaan to, to allow them freedom to escape persecution and freedom to practice their religion and to earn a livelihood and you know economic yeah, I, opportunity i i was i i don't recall that i had ever read this or at least paid attention to it this way and the most interesting part is that stuff about how they write a letter to is it adam or edom yeah in numbers 20 where it says uh but so they say you know we will travel along we won't you know mess with your stuff basically and around verse 18, 19, Edom answers, you may not pass through here, and if you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. And they try again, and they say, no, you may not. And then it finally says, since Edom refused to let them go through their territory, Israel turned away from them, which was so, uh, I, I, it was unexpected to me because I would have thought like God would smite them or something, but no, Edom just gets to live as a sovereign nation now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like Edom says, we don't want any Jews coming through, and it's hard to understand why because the Jews simply wanted to enrich them with multiculturalism. Yeah, we just want to walk through here. We're not gonna, we're gonna pay for whatever we take. It's like, how can you resist that? I don't know. Yeah, and um, in some in some translations, they note that uh, that Moshe says, you know, I think there's a resurgence of anti-Semitism because at this point in time, Eden Edom has not yet learned how to become multi multicultural. And I think we're going to be part of the throes of that transformation, which must take place. Edom and Canaan and the rest of the ancient Near East are not going to be the monolithic societies that they once were in the last century. Jews are going to be at the center of that. It's a huge transformation for Edom to make. They're now going into multicultural mode. And Jews will be resented because of our leading role. Because without that leading role and without that transformation, Edom will not survive. But then... Edom actually, I think, like cut funding to its internationally famous university and kicked everybody out and closed the borders and built walls and stuff. I feel like that's what happened, right? It's like Hungary. They're like Hungary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Edom feels very alt right to me, very nationalistic, very bigoted, anti-Semitic. Frankly, I, I you know I hate to accuse anyone of anti-Semitism, but you know this like you can't go through our land. That just strikes me as very anti-Semitic. <laughs> what uh? What do you think ever happened to the Edomites? Well, you don't hear about them today, do you? Because they refuse to adapt to modernity. They refuse to become multicultural. Huh. And uh, if you refuse to become multicultural, you die out. 
Is that because of God or because of, uh, like, why is that? Uh, because we say so, because Jews say so, because it's good for the Jews. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of pressure. I guess maybe, like, maybe, like, think of a more famous, well, who were the other ones? Because they then went on and they actually wrote the same letter to, is it Canaan or? Yeah, the, the, the next, yeah. yeah, and they um, they did finally sort of accept them conditionally. Um, did that go better? No, because if you look at Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 to 3, the, the king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming, and he fought against Israel, and he took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord, said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. They were utterly destroyed and their cities. So that seems fair. Like if the Goyim has a chutzpah to you know, block us, to get in our way, to interfere, then if they have the chutzpah to take some of us captive, it just seems only right that we utterly destroy them and destroy their towns. I agree. I'm not anti-Semitic. I know. That's one of the things I love about you. <laughs> How about um, what happens in these chapters where, like, the um, there's this scene where, well, first of all, I guess, never mind. Let's just continue where we are because there's a few weird ones, but I guess we should keep talking about the immigration question for a while. Especially, is it complicated by the fact that Israel has a nation state now? Well, obviously, the laws that apply to the unclean don't apply to the clean. I mean, it's important, you know, because the Gentile is inherently unclean and has an inferior soul, but it's important that his essence be constantly diluted because otherwise he would just spiral into, you know, bigotry and anti-Semitism. But those same principles that apply to the unclean, you know, you're not going to apply them to the clean. You know, you want the clean to be really clean. You want the clean to be able to protect nice things and to have their way of life and to be ever more cohesive and strong. So, you know, on the one hand, God's chosen people, there are certain laws that operate for God's chosen people. But the rest of humanity are not chosen. They're not clean. They have, like, animalistic souls. They don't have divine souls like, you know, the, the Jew. And so entirely different sets of laws apply to them. In uh, Numbers 19.10, it talks about how, like, the people who gather up the ashes of the heifer will be unclean till evening. And this will be a lasting ordinance that applies not only to the Israelites, but also to foreigners residing among them. So, you know, they don't have any compunction about um, coercing or forcing the, yeah, the, uh, the Gentiles. Right, because... It's know, like Sharia law. It's like Sharia yeah. law, right? Yeah. Like a healthy people has no compunction about enforcing their way of life on strangers who happen to reside among them. Exactly. Like if Americans were healthy, you know, they wouldn't put up with any nonsense. Uh, no. you know, for instance, to, to be serious, I think it's nonsense that you can't fire someone who doesn't work on the Sabbath. Like I will not work on the Sabbath because I'm an Orthodox Jew and I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist and as a Seventh-day Adventist, I would not walk, work on the Sabbath. But uh, why should my employer be forced to honor that? Like, right. you know, that, that just seems weird to me. Like a, a strong people 
enforce their way of life on everyone who lives among them. And if you don't like it, you can leave. What about, um, like, the morning call to prayer? Should Would Israel have allowed such a thing sort of on their lands? It's ridiculous. There's no way he would allow mosques. Like, there's no way you would allow, you know, foreign religions. You know, from a Torah perspective, you don't allow foreign strange religions in your land. You don't allow the the mosque with its call to prayer. Like it's it's just so you know contrary to Torah. And yeah, you know, Israel currently allows that because Israel has two million Arabs and uh, you know Israel needs to appear you know democratic. But to the rest of the world and like a first world nation and you know liberal values and all that. But you know at core that's not that's not the Jewish thing to do. I mean, you have to make compromises sometimes. It seems to me like, um, you know what people don't understand? Like, like the idea of letting a mosque set up and do its morning call to prayer in Dearborn, Michigan, to me is very similar to letting like them plant the, you know, the ISIS or the Saudi flag there and sort of just declare themselves a sovereign country. Like, People don't understand that religions are ideologies. They're so like you can't allow it doesn't make any sense even to allow like a, another one. I mean, I just can't. I, it's bizarre to me that people aren't seeing that, that we have, you know, sort of like the, the, the thing that's happening in London, for instance, where you've got like a Muslim mayor, you've got 25 percent population that's Muslim and, and growing, of course, because they're, you know, they're repopulating way faster than the locals. It's just like, how do you think that's going to turn out? I don't, I saw someone tweet this morning where they said something like the elite has to keep doubling down on the multiculturalism because they can't admit that the racists were right. They can never admit that. So it's just like, how does it end? It ends with, you know, Muslim London, I guess. Bizarre. Yeah. um, You'll notice in, in uh, Numbers 19, verse 9, uh, it says that the, the, the ashes of the red heifer must be guarded scrupulously lest they become invalidated through contamination. So imagine that we have the ashes of the red heifer in Los Angeles today. Now you just left them in a container, you know, outside the, the synagogue. Now the Mexicans would go through it. You know, the, when I come out in the morning, the Mexicans are going through my trash looking for anything that they can sell for recycling. So the more multicultural your society, the more you have to guard precious things because you really can't have nice things in a multicultural society unless you also have a police state. Because like, why would Mexicans, you know, regard the ashes of the red heifer with any sanctity? You know, obviously they have no incentive to do so. Only Jews are going to regard the, the ashes of the red heifer with any sanctity and take care to not molest them. If we could just have one hour on NBC some Sunday morning, I feel like we could convince at least half of this country to see that like, yeah, that's the whole point is that there are different, whole different value systems and different like appeals to emotion and everything. So like, why would anyone think that it could work? It just is an incoherent, it's, like, let's think of more examples of what that would be like. It would be like if there's a sports team and uh, you told the quarterback and the halfback, 
that they can't communicate with the offensive line or the wide receivers. You know, now like run a play, and it's just going to be a disaster every time because no one knows what anyone's doing. Yeah, um, when when Edom refused to let uh, Israelites through, Aaron said, "You know what affects movements in." Edom and the ancient Near East, what affects our attitudes are as much the culture and the arts as anything else. It's not anything legislatively that's been done, it's the social media. And that's what changes people's attitude. Think, think behind all that, a bit behind 85% of changes in society, whether it's in Hollywood or social media, are a consequence of Jewish leaders in the industry. The influence is immense, and I might add, it is all to the good. And he said that to Edom, and yet Edom still refused to let them pass through. It's amazing. Is that in the Kaddish or what? That that's like in uh, that's in uh, it's a midrash. Oh, okay. It's, I love it. it. I love yeah, it. it's in the Talmud, and and I think the Edomite refusal to let Israel through shows why we need the United Nations. We need very strong United Nations to mediate this dispute. Why we have to move past petty nationalism to embrace globalism and one world government. And you'd want such a government run by the smartest people, of course. Now, you yes. wouldn't want you know, some dummies running a world government. So, of course, it's going to be, you know, run by Jews because we're the smartest and our souls are divine and uh, we just know what's best for everyone. Let's talk about your favorite brands of Jewish architecture. Like, what have Jews contributed to architecture in world history? Well, the temple. The temple was amazing, believe me. It was the greatest. I mean, like we have, we have like the greatest <laughs> temple. Believe me, like it's in gold. I mean, if you saw it, you would have been amazed. Yeah. So, so we have the ancient temples, and then there are actually some synagogues that are beautiful. Like by and large, you know, Jews are handicapped architecturally because if we build anything really magnificent, you know, in front of the the Gentiles, they're not going to appreciate that. So generally speaking, Jewish homes, Jewish buildings tend to be kind of plain because you don't want to upset the goyim and make them envious. So they're plain on the outside, luxurious on the inside. That's uh, really strategic. That's a that's like thinking 4D chess two steps ahead where you're like, we could build magnificent human scale, ornate, but not you know ostentatious buildings, but we don't because we don't want to offend the Gentiles. Right, right. So, you know, a lot of people say, oh, Jews haven't really contributed much in art. But the reason that we've held back on that is that we don't want to cause another Holocaust. That's so. admirable. <laughs> I, do, I think the interesting thing, <laughs> the interesting thing to me about Jewish architecture is that, like, it tends to be, like stripped of any, like, you know, you, like the Chicago style, you just sort of tall rectangles made out of glass and steel, stripped of any, like, local culture or color or custom. Uh, and I wonder if that's related to um, multi multiculturalism. Like, that's what multiculturalism looks like to me at best is like just the Hancocked Tower or the you know like some Mies van der Rohe building in Chicago. I'm not sure. I do know that a Jew wrote, you know, the number one novel about architecture, Ayn Rand, the Fountainhead. 
So oh, true. we have that. And uh, uh, like Jews have, tend to have high verbal IQs, but their their uh, mechanical spatial IQs aren't, aren't nearly as high. So Jews don't tend to dominate engineering, architecture, you know, and physical art, you know, the way they dominate art criticism. So in his book, uh, The Painted Word, uh, Tom Wolfe noted that, you know, modern art had moved away from being a visual experience and was more often an illustration of art critics' theories of words. So, of course, you know, Jews dominate words. So the main target of Wolfe's book was, was the three prominent art critics whom he dubbed the kings of Kulturberg, Clement Greenberg, Harold Rosenberg, and Leo Steinberg. And uh, Tom Wolfe argued that these three men were dominating the world of art with their theories, and uh, the art world was then controlled by this insular circle of rich collectors, museums, and critics with outside influence who were you know, largely Jewish. Yeah, I mean, do you, is there a, in our, like, that's interesting, because I do, it does seem probably genetic, right, that the, the, or, but maybe not, I mean, I suppose if you require people to take all these years of Torah class and all that stuff, then they're going to be good at words at the end of it, um, but I wonder if, like, I don't know, I, could there be a, a like, non-word-based civilization? Because if there was, then you would expect you know, that would be a healthy Gentile civilization that would be kind of impervious to um, multiculturalization. Yeah, look at Somalia. I mean, Somalia, there's, you know, you're, you're free to carry a gun. You're free to practice your religion. <clears throat> there's very little government regulation. Um, Somalia is not overly obsessed with the written word. So I'd say like Somalia and most African countries are, are good examples of, of uh of countries that are not based on on words, for instance, uh, the the vocabulary of, of African nations, like before the white man, there there really weren't that many words, uh, and and so it's the white man who came along with all these you know torrent of words. So, you know, African nations tend to have in their native languages tend to have very few words, which kind of limits what they can describe, and uh, and it kind of it's it's kind of a reflection of their low IQs. What do you think about the part where Moses builds a bronze snake? This is in Numbers twenty one nine, and puts it up on a pole, and he says, "If anybody gets bitten now, they'll be okay if they look at this thing." Is that uh, it seemed a little idolatrous to me. No. Well, it's not idolatrous if we do it. <laughs> Interesting. That's, that's the thing. That's interesting. You just keep that. You just you just don't get as a as a guy. I mean, <laughs> the new biologically limited. But if we do something, it is inherently not racist, not bigoted, not idolatrous. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's good, and and uh, that's the that's the tribal outlook on on uh, on life. So, but it was like a one time thing. It's not. You know, it's not an ongoing totem that you, you know, worship a snake right. when you're, uh, um, when you're, you know, when you're in trouble. Like there's a great essay on morality and abstract thinking 
by Gedalia Braun, who's uh, an American who's taught philosophy at several African universities. And uh, he quickly noticed when he came to Africa that Africans rarely kept their promises and saw no need to apologize uh, when they broke them. And uh, Gedalia Braun says, morality requires abstract thinking as this planning for the future. And that a relative deficiency in abstract thinking kind of explains many things that are typically African. Mm. So um, he was learning about the African languages and uh, these two African women expressed surprise at his English dictionary. They, they said, isn't English your language? Uh, then why do you need a dictionary? And uh, because they knew every, every language in Kikuyu, every word in Kikuyu. So there are only about 200 words. So oh. um, that's what it's like when you have a, have a culture that's not, um, that's yeah, not verbal. Uh, verbal. So, you know, the Zulu word for promise is not really the same way that we understand promise. So when a black person promises, it means maybe I will and maybe I won't. Uh, uh, I have a question. I have a yeah. question. Do you think memes, to the extent that they are visual largely, are going to be something for the kind of international Jewish community to kind of reckon, reckon with? Because I've been seeing more and more of these, um, for instance, like, for instance, just like a one-minute video clip uh, with some kind of nostalgic music of what London was like in the 60s. And it's hard to resist to me as, uh, and I'm, again, it's below the level of words, so I can't really even defend it except I just see it and everybody does look happy. Or like my mom actually sent me a, her favorite um, song from when she was 12 years old in 1960 last night, and it was... Uh, uh, I will follow him. Oh yeah, I, I love that song. Yeah, it's a great song, and like I listened to it again last night, and it's just such a different world. It's so like cheery and kind of just hopeful and and confident, you know. And even she said to me like, "Yeah, it's just it was a different time then. People seemed happier or whatever, you know." But I wonder if these things might have a kind of, uh, you know, r resurrecting power in them, or do you think ultimately the word wins? Well, I think it points to the need for meme regulation. <laughs> I mean, memes are just out of control, and so many of them are anti-Semitic. Um, and, and Jews, because we have the high verbal IQ, but not the high visual IQ, you know, we're at a disadvantage. Like, you don't see Jews dominating the meme, you know, the meme wars. You know, the Gentiles inherently have an advantage. Like, all the great memes are done by Gentiles. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think it's time... No, I have a better idea for you. Meme yeah. criticism. Meme criticism. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we have tons of that, like the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Anti-Defamation oh. League. You know, they're all like, you know, Hillary Clinton. Um, <laughs> you know, they're all like right on criticizing memes, you know, and, and fighting against Pepe, you know, just sparing no expense in their war on Pepe. But like a, a department of meme studies might be an effective way of kind of, you know, steering. Because yeah. I think that like otherwise, what I'm a, what I'm afraid of, on behalf of the Jews, is that Western European people are going to have more and more access to um, their own visual history, which includes architecture, uh, the paintings, the sculpture, and 
you know, and then music history too, basically their own nonverbal history. And if people see too much of that, I'm afraid they'll end up taking it out on the Jews. It's weird. Yeah. Now, like we all know, memes are nonsense, but the history of memes is scholarship. So while memes are nonsense, if we could set up like university departments to study memes, that would be scholarship and that would be something that Jews would excel at. And, and perhaps that way we could kind of corral yeah. and, and reduce the power of memes so that Gentiles don't start thinking that, you know, that they deserve their own countries and, you know, that they deserve, you know, their own nationalisms and, you know, they deserve... You know, identity. To, yeah, deserve identity. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean are there, is there anything more dangerous than Gentile identity? I mean, it's just like there's a straight line between Gentiles knowing who they are the Holocaust. I mean, it's just like, whoo. yeah, too dangerous. I remember, like, <laughs> what, when you look at, when you look at like the thousand years or so that that the 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 variations on the meme of you know the Christ Child and Mary were kind of at the center. Like, just all these different variations of this fake two dimensional woman holding a fake baby, and somehow these people thought like that's us. That created a real poisonous oh, stew of so much hatred. Yeah, just just so much hatred because when when the Gentiles, you know, fell in love with their God and with their architecture, and they had a sense of themselves as a distinct people, uh, you know, having a distinct role in the universe, and and that you know that they were chosen by God. I mean, very dangerous, very dangerous stuff, Casey. I noticed uh, this week because I was, I, I ordered myself, I don't know why, um, just sort of on an impulse because I knew it would be cheap and I got Amazon Instant or whatever. I ordered a compass and a protractor and was playing around with some visual designs. And Oof. I know it's, <laughs> hold on, but I'm taking baby steps here. But I was reading about how Carl, <laughs> about how Carl Jung was into that stuff and uh, and of course, Freud wasn't like Freud was not into that. But um, apparently, like some of uh, like guys like Goebbels and even Hitler had some interest in um, visual stuff. You know, in fact, of course, like like it's it's not a very far leap from buying a compass and protractor to like drawing swastika. <laughs> I mean, it's just natural. Like, I not like you know when I whenever I have a protractor, like or just like a pen and paper. Like the first thing I want to draw are either penises or swastikas. It's like it, it's it's an illness, it's a sickness, and I think we have to be aware. But um, speaking of Hitler, you know, he was the greatest artist of any major political I know. leader. Like True. he was a far greater artist than than Churchill. Have you ever like looked at Hitler's paintings? I they're mean, they're really quite good. I sh I actually showed some to my class this week because we were talking about Kafka's story, The Metamorphosis, and so I was showing them all of the that was published in 1915, so a little early, but kind of at the height of like German refinement pre World War One, and I was showing them all these. Uh, they kind of basically degenerate paintings by, you know, um, uh, Max something and, you know, the, the, like where everybody's face is distorted and it's all crowded and they're all, it's just, it's upsetting to look at. 
Um, and then I showed them Hitler's paintings too. Not, of course, not naming them. And they all went, oh, see, now that's art. You know, that's art. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, I agreed with them for a minute. I was like, now I see, you know, like I said, look, what he's doing. In fact, you know, the famous one is that one with that building that apparently had already been torn down. Um, I'll send, I don't know if you know it, but it's the, it's probably the first one that comes up. And apparently when he painted that, they had already taken it down and replaced it with some ugly building. But he painted it, and the you know the principle there was like it, let's make Germany great again, basically, right? He was painting yeah. like what Germany was like when it was beautiful. Um, yeah, my students didn't like that trick, but I showed them. Uh, so Hitler, we discussed him two weeks ago, and kind of I said. I'd read a book by Stolfi, who was a military historian at the Naval Academy in Monterey. So, you know, not not some far out, you know, old right nut, um, but a very respected military historian. And he said that Hitler's best understood as a as a messianic figure like Muhammad. And then we started talking. Perhaps he's like better understood as a messianic figure like Jesus, in that you know Jesus was killed, his followers were killed. And their followers were like severely persecuted and slaughtered for 300 years. And then suddenly they were uh, allowed to, to practice that thing. And within 10 years, they took over an empire. And, and I think that's a really good analogy for, for Hitler, for national socialism, for, for Nazism, for, for the alt-right, for you know, ethno-nationalism of, of the Gentile variety. No, you can persecute it, you can kill it, you can restrict it, you can stigmatize it. Uh, but, you know, almost every guy I know is, you know, fascinated by documentaries about the Nazis. And it's it's so fascinating that, for, you know, you can't show triumph of the will in Germany to this day. You know, why does there have to be such restrictions, you know, on this material? Because it does inherently speak to a part of, of the, the Gentile soul. And so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the religion of Hitler, you know, comes roaring back, you know, any day or maybe in 300 years. And I know that you, you thought about that point a little bit since uh, our last show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting hypothesis. And of course, we'll have to sort of wait and see, I guess. Um, but you know, like those friends, just for instance, the early Christians were thought by the Romans to be terrible people. Like they were, they were nothing but a menace to society. You know, they were so obsessed with, well, let's put it this way. They were so obsessed with identity that they basically relegated everything that wasn't part of that identity to the, to the boundaries. It was all useless. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but some people have blamed, blamed the burning of the Library of Alexandria on St. Cyril of Alexandria, who, you know, uh, had already killed one of the pagan teachers. I mean, they, they're, they're very, they're like an intense, I mean, they're, they would almost be like a terrorist organization. And I can, when, I mean, I'm not really even, I'm not joking that, that the, the, like the attitude of major, like the sort of majority attitude of Rome to early Christians was not that different to our than our attitude in general to white supremacists now, which is not to say anything. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, who knows how it'll turn out? But 
if you're looking for a historical parallel, it's kind of an interesting one. Um, because then again, you have the, the kind of the secrecy or the underground, like when I was in Rome a couple of years ago, I went to see the um, catacombs, which are where they, it was sort of way on the edge of the city, outside the city walls, where they were allowed, or not, not even allowed, but like could get away with meeting uh, because, you know, there wasn't enough surveillance or whatever, and they would meet literally underground and kind of do their thing. And it developed real slowly for two or 300 years before it was able to, you know, bubble up and catch Constantine's mother, right? That's, it, it's always interesting too, how it goes in like the, the sort of back doors to power and backs its way up to the emperor. Um, yeah, I don't know how that'll turn out. Is the backlash against, you know, any public espousal of racial realism or any alt-right ideas or you know, particularly against any Nazi ideas, neo-Nazi ideas, white supremacist ideas, white nationalism, is the backlash against that, you know, it's so strong. Is that a sign of strength of the ruling order? Or is it a sign of weakness that like whenever there's the slightest outbreak of real talk on race, you know, that you know, suddenly all these organizations descend, you know, so is that a sign of strength on the part of the ruling powers or is that a sign of weakness? For instance, you know, according to Greg Johnson, the editor of Countercurrents, it's a sign of weakness because it says, you know, the current ruling order is running at about 99% capacity. You know, they are literally doing everything they can to squelch any race realist, uh, you know, Gentile nationalist talk. And so it, while on the other hand, Gentile nationalism in, in America and, and in Europe is, you know, very, very weak. It's running at a very low level of capacity, like one or 2%. And so at any time, these things could start to, start to switch. Or do you think it's a sign of the strength of the ruling order? No, I agree with Greg. I think paranoia is like a gateway drug. You know, you kind of suspect and then your suspicions turn into motivation to resist. And yeah, I mean, that's what happened, right? That's what happened in Rome is that they got all five. I mean, the reason like we don't remember all those other false prophets named in the New Testament alongside Jesus is because the ruling order didn't uh, like, let's say, publicly crucify them as much or make them get eaten by lions in the Colosseum or whatever. People love watching Christians get eaten. You know, I think that was a favorite national sport in Rome in the year 200 or whatever. Um, I was going to go back to that thing about the Hitler documentaries. I'm sort of surprised. Did you see the thing where, um, so first of all, Zuckerberg is going to be running for president in 2020 for sure. It looks like to me. And I heard a quote from him this week where he was saying, we, he said, I initially thought that just bringing everybody together and putting them in touch online would be, I can't remember exactly his phrasing, like, but would be the thing, like, that'll be great. Um, but then he said, but now I realize we're going to have to do something about the bad actors. And I mean, you know, you take him, you take that to mean the Greg Johnson and his crowd or something. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, I noticed that like the whole structure of the internet, it's going to be really hard. Like, think of YouTube's success and how much money it's producing and so on. And like YouTube allows, at least for now, um, lots of Hitler documentaries. And I only know that because I have a friend who watches a lot of Hitler documentaries. But it like it reminded me. Here's what it made me think of this week: is that when I was in eighth grade which was basically the last year of my life before the internet that I can really remember. 
we were made to watch uh, uh, what the Schindler's List, and we you know read mm-hmm. a book or something. I think Eli Wiesel's Night, and that was it. Like that was it. And you know it, that was I, to me that was scary stuff. And geez, that's bad. And you know it's bad. Um, but like there are a lot of documentaries about there uh, out there about that time period about Weimar and about like sort of the whole that like I've never seen that I've only discovered recently and what do you what do you think they're going to do are they going to get rid of those or make you pay or something well you know the history channel is often called the Hitler channel because so many of its documentaries are about mm. about the Nazis and I think there's just an in- natural human fascination with with that because it, it basically touches on on themes that I think that are that are very natural to people such as you know venerating your own race venerating your own kind before all other races I think that's natural uh, I think it's natural to you know at least you know want to suppress the number of uh, you know mentally and physically retarded people that we bring into the world and, and subsidize you know, I think most people have you know some sort of inclination of uh, wouldn't it be nice if we, you know, encourage the development of, of the best of, of people rather than, you know, allowing those who didn't graduate high school to have six kids and support them all on welfare, you know, generation after generation. Uh, so I, I, I think that uh, the themes of national nationalism, particularly as embodied by national socialism, are just inherently fascinating. And so I don't think... YouTube would, would ever remove all its its Hitler documentaries. Uh, what there might be a crackdown on is any is any documentary that, that showed sympathy towards Hitler and the Nazis. You know, conceivably, I could see a crackdown on that. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think that'll. Ha- I mean, yeah. I I just I think it's interesting. Like the whole connectivity that the internet produced seems to me like it's maybe not helpful to Jewish interests. It seems to be hurting. But on the other hand, yeah, like, yeah. but on the other hand, it's definitely the future unless something drastic happens. So I'm just interested to see how it, how it settles down. Well, the, the big Jewish organizations have always been interested in uh, kind of restricting the internet. Uh, in, in the United States, they don't call for outright repeal of the First Amendment, but you hear you know, Jewish activists talking about uh, hate speech laws and restricting hate speech on the internet, and and so Jewish organizations such as the Simon Wiesenthal Center and the Anti Defamation League have wanted to you know, ban hate speech. You know, restrict it on the internet, make the major internet service providers uh, you know ban access to to hate speech, and then in in Europe and Australia. Jewish groups have been behind uh, hate speech law so that it becomes a crime to say anything negative about another group, to disparage another group, uh, and to restrict access to to hate speech. So in the aftermath of the, the terror attack in London right before the election, Theresa May said, you know, we, we, we need social media to restrict the ability of uh, these terrorists to put their ideas out there and uh, so I think this has been a very common approach by major Jewish organizations 
And then on the other hand, what I think does help them um, is a kind of like when public institutions are considered to be strong and when people like, for instance, when people trust the New York Times, things are going good because, you know, then you've got a headline and your average reader just kind of skims headlines anyway. And and that's it. But did you notice, I mean, maybe 10 years ago or so, there, the, you started to see like rebellion in the comments section. And then, you know, you know, the New York Times tried to solve this by adding like a New York Times picks, editors picks, etc. Um, and the same would go for like college professors or priests or ministers or the head of the Southern Baptist Convention or whatever. It's like as long as people implicitly trust the powers that be, I think that helps the Jewish case. But when people like when the commenters on YouTube start getting their way, I think that's dangerous. I'll be right back. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a great comment that uh, the 2016 election was a election between the comment section and and the article because you know, all the mainstream media articles about Trump were about 85% negative. And so while while people who didn't respect their betters were, were those who, who voted for Trump. So I want to go into the, the chat room. There are some uh, great comments here uh, from Pepe. Luke, does the, do the majority of Jews believe this about the Goyim or is it a minority? So reacting to, to a rant where I was satirizing uh, a certain Jewish perspective that the, the, the Goyim are all animals, you know, that they don't have a divine soul, that they you know, can't be trusted with their own nationalisms. Uh, so it, it's complicated. The more you identify with your group, the more likely you are to have negative views of our group. So the more a Jew identifies as a Jew, more traditionally is in his practice, the more likely he has to, to have fear and other negative feelings about non-Jews. Uh, also, it depends on where the, the Jew comes from. Jews from Eastern Europe had horrible relations with non-Jews for hundreds of years, while Jews from Western Europe have generally tended to admire the, the non-Jews. So, most Jews in America love the United States of America. Most Jews in England, France, Germany, uh, Western Europe, you know, kind of admire the civilization that the, the Gentiles have built. But Jews from Eastern European origins tend to have an instinctive uh, fear and dislike for, for the Goyim because of those, you know, centuries of horrible relations. Go ahead. Did you say the Eastern European Jews? Yeah, or Jews of those, those origins. You know, will we'll much more intense, intensely tend to tend towards dislike of, of the Goyim and tend towards much more radical politics, while Jews from Western Europe uh, tend to kind of admire the the societies that the, the Gentiles have built around them. Yeah, is that is that the distinction between Ashkenaz and Sephardi, or not quite? Not quite, because Eastern European Jews are also Ashkenazi, but. It's the distinction, say, between German Jews and Eastern European Jews. Like German Jews were probably a majority of the Jews in the United States prior to 1870. And uh, they tended to be right wing in their politics and they tended to be conservative. Um, they didn't want to stand out distinct and separate from, from the Gentiles. And they tended to admire the, 
society that the Gentiles had built and they wanted to get along and thrive in it. While the Jews from Eastern Europe arrived and say, oh, you can vote, you know, we don't like the, the Goyim, we're gonna, we're gonna radically transform things. We're gonna, we're gonna push for Zionism. German Jews weren't for Zionism. You know, we're gonna push for socialism and communism and you know, we're gonna shake things up uh, because Jews of Eastern European origins have just had such horrible relations with, with Gentiles for hundreds of years that there's, a, there's an instinctive antipathy to the outsider. Did you ever, or did you read this week that, uh, you know, what is it, the forward article about the, comparing Jews to transformers? Did you see that one? I saw the headline. Yeah, it's, uh, let me just read you a little clip. Uh, with the release of the fifth installment of Transformers franchise, it seems like an appropriate time to reveal that they are Jewish. The Transformers are giant robots who can change themselves into everyday objects, including cars, airplanes, trucks, and tanks. They excel at mimicry, morphing between machine and robot with chameleon-like ease, perfectly and speedily mimicking human-made cars, trucks, and the like. Uh, they have evolved their machine disguises as a tactic to move unnoticed among humans and travel around at will. Hence, Transformers embody the Jewish experience. It has been the struggle of Jews to blend into and pass in Western Christian society to be invisible, and so on. Um, I mean, that's it's odd to me that that would be something you could make public. I could almost see how a secret society would talk like that, but... How, like, how it is that you're gonna tell me that you're trying? You're basically passing yourself off as a member of my country club, so that you get all the benefits. Like, what am I missing here? The yeah, well, first of all, this is a publication that's aimed primarily at Jews, so there's oh. a much greater degree of comfort here in talking about these things. Uh, you know, you talk about things, you know, with your own kind, with much more honesty and openness than, than you do when you're talking directly to the outsider. And then on the other hand, you know, what are the Jewish options? Okay, let's say you live in England or the United States or France. Like, do you really want to stand out as much as possible, that's obviously going to make your life much more difficult. Like any group, any minority group is going to want to blend in with the majority. Like that's not unique to Jews. Um, it's only a minority of minorities who want to stand out and be as different as, as possible. So I, I think the, the article is, is accurate. It's an accurate Jewish self-perception. but. I also don't think there's a lot of freedom of choice here. Of course, Jews are going to want to blend in, you know, in, in Western society. You know, of course, Jews are going to want to have the, the benefits of belonging, you know, without, um, you know, giving up their own identity. So there is going to be some passing rather than assimilating. Uh, there's a quote on top of my blog that, that addresses this, uh, comes from an observer. American Jews want to maintain a distinct identity and on the other hand, want to be fully integrated into broader society and don't want the distinctiveness to come at a price. And I think this would also apply to all minority groups. Like that's all, what I want. Yeah, that's what I want. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just, just the way social dynamics operate. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I, you know, I, 
I guess I think of like um, I I read somewhere that someone was sort of sort of noting that historically, as long as Muslims are like two percent or so, they'll they'll generally try to assimilate and get go along, get along. But when they get to ten percent, is when they start to form like um, like cloistered or closed off communities and start to try to enforce their own laws or or their own values or whatever. And it's interesting that Jews in America have have, have just kind of hovered around the two percent mark. You know, uh, now I know they're on. They seem they seem to have a larger presence in certain um, industries. Which makes it seem like they're more than two percent, but I, I'll accept the number. Yeah, like the more any minority group feels confident, the more they will assert themselves. Like like blacks have felt much more confident since 1965, since the Civil Rights Act. So the, they they've asserted themselves much more. Like Black Lives Matter asserted itself much more under Obama than under President Trump, because under Obama they felt safe. And so they asserted themselves. Under Trump, they don't feel safe. They see a backlash against them. So they they turn things down. So the more confident Jews feel, the more outwardly Jewish they will be, the more distinctive they will be. The less confident Jews feel, the more they will try to hide, the more they'll try to you know pass, the more you know, they'll try to assimilate and, and to blend in. And th there's never been a country where Jews made up more than 5% of the population where it wasn't racked by anti-Semitism. So just like Muslims tend to behave well at under 2% of the population, but once they start getting beyond that, they start creating more and more conflict. So too with Jews, it's a different form of conflict. But when Jews get to 5% of a population, you know, there's gonna be a tremendous anti-Semitic backlash because you increasingly have a nation within within a nation. Also, did you read that um, tweet that Andrew Joyce put up this week about how whites in America tend to overcompensate because they're self-aware of like their racism to, against blacks, and so when they deal with black people, they tend to be like even more. They treat them even more than equal, which I thought yeah. was interesting. Like I, it seems like whatever black people are doing, they have. Man, like that's a that's a success for them. You have to see that as a success. They've managed to turn people into kind of like cutting them some slack wherever they go. It seems like, you know, bravo in a way. I don't I don't know what, what to think about that, but it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's good for them, and it just exemplifies the same trends that go with any minority group. Yeah, like any you give them more and more reason to feel confident, the more they're going to assert themselves, and that's usually going to be at the expense of the majority. So, you know, blacks asserting themselves is, you know, perhaps it's great for blacks, you know, it's bad for whites. You know, I, I don't like, you know, sports turning into trash talking and, you know, the, the other characteristics of, of blacks, uh, uh, you know, that have come to dominate certain, certain sports. Um, you know, I like Anglo-Saxon norms. And, uh, and so when any other norms, you know, come to the fore, it's bad for those Anglo-Saxon norms. And so I like, I also like Jewish norms, particularly Jewish norms that are based on Torah, you know, particularly that take place in the Jewish state. So the more confident Jews get in the, in the Jewish state, you know, that's bad for the minority Arabs who live there. Did you ever read, I think it's quoted in, 
culture of critique, uh, or else I saw it related to that, a quote from John Podhoretz's father about how he was raising his boy John. And he said something like, you know, don't, don't you ever forget that we're Jews. We're not Americans here. And uh, I can't remember the whole quote, but I mean, that, that sort of a thing seems to me that like, okay, okay, so like on the one hand, when you're shooting for a cohesive, coherent country, obviously that kind of talk is a threat because it's faction and it undermines the general consensus uh, of reality or whatever. But I think there comes a tipping point while, where like societies are going multicultural where that becomes, if not the norm, it becomes at least wisdom. Like you, sh you know, so like all parents basically should be saying to their kids, listen, we just happen to live in America, but you're not like an American. That's a meaningless thing. Don't make that mistake. Instead, think of yourselves as X. And I think Jews maybe tend to do that. Maybe black people tend to do that. Muslim Arab people probably tend to do that. Um, not sure about the rest of us, but it seems like a wise strategy to me, don't you think? Yeah, if you're confident. <laughs> it's not a wise strategy if you're in a perilous position. If you're uh -huh. in a perilous position, it's a terrible strategy because you're just provoking a backlash. So, uh, and, and then, you know, if you're confident, you want to make sure that you're rooted in reality. So I'll just give you... I'll just give you an example from like everyday life. So the more confident I feel in the workplace, you know, the more I'm going to be myself. <laughs> the more I will say, you know, provocative things. Um, and so, you know, I better be reading the situation right. And often over the course of my life, I haven't read the situation right. I've been confident in, in the workplace when I should not have been confident. And as a result, I got fired. Mm -hmm. So that too can happen to a people. You can be this, confident and, and misread the situation and get fired. This is one of my favorite topics, but it's a big one. Um, but we like maybe next week we can talk about that, that, about that exactly, about confidence and about how like it's sort of a strength until it becomes a weakness and then it's very dangerous. Um, I, was, uh, I had one other thought for you this week about... Um, oh, so I, I'm interested in like, can you... I know it's early, you know, given like the, the American empire is not even 300 years old or whatever, but given kind of what you know about demographic trends, about race and IQ, about tribalism, about politics, like what, if you had to put your money on it, what kind of a scenario do you think we're looking at over the next, like, I don't know, kind of medium range term, like maybe 50 to 200 years here, like, What's going to happen? Well, I would say there's probably, you know, at least a one-third chance that we're going to enter into a situation like 1933 Germany, where there will be an enormous reaction against Weimar America, and and move things in, in a in a white nationalist direction. Um, I'd say it's probably two-thirds likely that we will steadily progress towards a Brazil-type situation, where you have elite whites and Asians, you know, with it living in protective enclaves in an in increasingly brown America. And in that case, like, see, I think, 
Yeah, that could be. I, that's a ooh, that's a terrible deal with the devil if those rich Asian and white people make that deal where they're like, okay, basically, like we'll just let it become Brazil as long as we can have our cloistered little communities in Alexandria, Virginia, or whatever. But um, but see, the other one's a bad. I mean, look, like I don't see how at this point when you're looking at like it's almost. I think it's. I think we're already talking about a majority of babies born are non-white. The idea of a white nationalist backlash at this point would be like it would make the Holocaust look like small talk. Um, so I almost hope that doesn't happen. But I, I want like I wonder if there's a, another option that would include something like faction and civil war, and and kind of almost like migrations, like great migrations of groups to different places or something, to try to escape. Like I. And I've heard about people talking about moving to New Zealand a lot lately, and it seems um, far-fetched to me at the moment. But, like, if all of a sudden I thought that, like, my daughters were going to have to live in, like, Brazil, I think I would, if I don't know, maybe I, I would consider it. Yeah, well, Americans have been people who have traditionally moved for their freedom rather than standing and fight. Like, Europeans are the ones who stayed behind in Europe and they're very attached to, to ties of blood and soil, while Americans just kept moving. You know, Americans, when, when blacks move into a neighborhood, they flee to, a, to another neighborhood. And when they didn't like things in England, they, they, they left for, for America. So now it's becoming a situation where either, you know, whites stand and fight or they they get wiped out. So I'm I'm curious, you know, what what's what's going to to happen there. I mean, at some point you'd think that white people have to make a stand and try to hold on to their country. And I know what would happen right now. Like if there was a race war, there was a civil war, there was a factional war. You know, whites obviously have the guns, the the cohesion when necessary and the smarts that they would they would destroy all their adversaries in any kind of racial war in the United States of America. But what about if this racial war doesn't happen for a hundred years? Well, I think as Dylan Roof put it, like if whites were only 20% of the population, they still have the smarts and the cohesion whereby they could take back their country. So maybe when it gets down below 10%, that's when I think there's no hope left for, for whites taking back their country. But I think as long as whites are more than 20% of the population, they have the smart strength and, and cohesion to take back their country. Interesting. Um, what else you got this week? What about humor? Humor is a... Is a oh, yeah, let's talk about that. Um, you know, is humor inherently decadent? Like, I, I think it is because, uh, for instance, just take adultery. Now, people only started making jokes about adultery once adultery was no longer regarded as a horrible thing. So I think, in general, humor is a sign of decadence. I I um I have a lot like a lot of thoughts that are sort of not I, I didn't write them down or anything, but I can't even remember how I arrived at that. I sent you that uh, direct message on Twitter last week. Like, oh my gosh, is it kind of hit me like all at once? Maybe humor is kind of decadent, which means it's maybe not great for people. Um, and but the thing is, so first of all, I've been kind of a big fan of like comedy, and that includes you know in all its forms for ten or so years. But there was actually a time in my twenties where I wasn't a big fan of it, and I was kind of I like I 
I was kind of repulsed by it instinctively. Like I, I didn't have a theory of why, but I just thought like, come on, like, like let's try a little harder here or something. And so whatever it was that you said, I, it, it, I did realize like, wow, maybe that's a possibility. And then I saw um, a tweet from Ramsey Paul this week where he said something about how women doing comedy isn't funny at all. And I had never really seriously considered that. But when you think of women in the kind of traditional sense as being like the anchor for morality in a family or something, it is it is a sign that things are falling apart in a certain way if women are up on stage in their late 20s, early 30s, single, talking about all the guys they've slept with, and we're all applauding and laughing. It's like, that's not, that's a kind of illness, it seems like to me. And I know I could, you know, I'd have to face the music. I feel like we're deep enough into this podcast that, or into this, that I'll get away with it. But I mean, in other words, it's not a popular thing to say. You have to pretend like female comedians are, you know, good and as good as the men. But yeah, that that's an interesting idea that it's decadent or that it's a threat to morality because ultimately, isn't it like it's it's always removed, right? It's not participating. It's always ironically detached from what's happening. It's like criticism in that sense. So it's it, it, maybe Kevin McDonald should do a chapter on it in his next book. Well, I think comedy is, is subversive. So the alt-right excels at comedy because it's subverting you know, the pause, it's subverting the decadence, it's subverting Weimar America. And to me, that's an anti-decadent thing. That's a great thing. But when you're subverting traditional mores, such as, you know, against race mixing, traditional mores against abortion, traditional you know, mores against having children out of wedlock when you're, you know, subverting traditional mores against adultery, when you're subverting traditional mores against promiscuity, then then that's really destructive. And for instance, Jews were not known for comedy until they became secular, until they, they left Orthodox Judaism. And while there are a few Orthodox Jewish comics, that's not really Orthodox Judaism. You know, they're they're interesting because they're so exceptional. Generally speaking, like Jewish comedy, you know, like Philip Roth's novel Portnoy's Complaint, is a result of secularism, of like ditching all of all of tradition. So comedy isn't usually a tool of tradition. Comedy is usually a tool subverting tradition. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm it makes me think of how like like throughout my late twenties I had this complaint that and it was just because I was moving into like adulthood and the professional world and all that stuff. But like all of my favorite insults and jokes and stuff from like middle school and high school uh, became like unspeakable. They be, you know, it was like taboo to call someone a pussy or whatever. But like to me, that was like a useful term. It was an important term. And so um, like in a way, you're sort of saying middle school humor, which kind of comes at the expense of its target like it's like it's when someone falls out of line or when they're not doing what they're supposed to do or as well as they could do it we make fun of them but it's always in the interest of steering them back into the pack whereas this this other kind of comedy makes fun of the people who are doing essentially what they're supposed to be doing for being too square or too you know closed-minded or whatever yeah it's interesting like Sister Ellen G. White, the prophet of the Seventh-day Adventists, and I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist, she says, 
there's really no room for humor unless it's for a good purpose. So that's kind of what you're saying too. Now, the place for humor is towards a good purpose. The place for humor is to stigmatize people in, engaging in destructive activity. Yeah, I think like that was my probably best friendship I ever had was in seventh, eighth, ninth grade. And this kid and I would always make fun of each other. And what we were doing is like forging identity. We were, we were, it was like bumper bowling or like an electric fence. Like as soon as you get to be too soft or too aggressive or too, you know, whatever, disrespectful or something, then you'd make fun, you know, um, I remember too, there was a moment one day when in eighth grade, my mom came to the school on her lunch break because some, one of my teachers had called her um, and told her I wasn't turning in my homework. And mom showed up at lunch and came like marching into the lunchroom and grabbed me and walked me outside and like pinned me up against the window right outside the table where I was sitting with all my friends. And uh, you know, I don't know, whatever she said, don't ever do that again. And I never did. But I remember when I went back in, like they kind of, it was almost like such a big thing that no one really even made fun of me. Like it, because they understood it was like, you know, there's like another level that you kind of don't make fun of. Like if she's here and it's that, it's, it must be serious enough to not make fun of him as a mama's boy or whatever. Yeah, I, I remember um, the day before the San Bernardino shootings, uh, I was in in a social situation where, where the, the leader of the situation told me, no more jokes about the freedom boat. Now, the freedom boat, for months previously, I'd been talking about how I was building a boat in my backyard so that everyone or the minorities who felt oppressed by America could get on the boat and the boat will take them wherever they want to go in the world. And whenever I would find... Uh, you know, some unhappy minority, you know, ranting against America or, you know, rioting or doing things destructive, you know, I'd always say, well, the solution is freedom boat. And then the day before the San Bernardino <clears throat> shooting, the, the leader said, no more jokes about San Bernardino, uh, about uh, freedom boat, you know, it's just not socially appropriate. Then there was the San Bernardino shooting. And the next day, I believe Donald Trump came out and called for a complete ban on all Muslim immigration into the United States. And after that, there was no more blocks on me making jokes about freedom vote. Like oh, once yeah. Donald Trump broke that taboo about saying, you know, we don't want any more Muslims in this country. You know, suddenly I was now free to say in more increased number of social situations, you know, hey, freedom vote, you know, let's put them all on a boat, send them where, wherever they want to go, but just get them the hell out of this country. Yeah, man, it has been so liberating, hasn't it, to be able to talk yeah. a little bit free? Like, I, I'm almost, I mean, I, I guess whatever, I'm kind of to the point where, like, I'm not really paying attention day to day what, like, the business of Trump, because it's, like, the news is just garbage. Like, if you watch CNN, I don't, I really think that that's become, like, a tabloid, so it's just fake. And then, uh, on the other hand, like, I'm sure Trump's doing some policy work or whatever, but mostly I just appreciate that uh, the change in culture and I had underestimated if it's possible, like how significant that would be for like my mental health. And, uh, you know, like that's from like, I'll never forget this election because I'll in all future elections take into account like the the kind of culture that will flow from 
the leader we elect? Because that seems like a real thing to me. Yeah, like, I don't know if you're reading Justin Murphy. He's the, the guy who wrote the essay, The Psychology of Prohibiting, you know, Certain Thinkers. Uh, he's, a, he's a commie. He's a communist, but the guy's brilliant. And, and uh, he wrote an essay this week that we, that we spend, you know, way much too, too much time censoring ourselves because we're used to the old paradigm where we have to behave in very proper manners to be able to get a chance to go on the BBC or appear in the New York mm -hmm. Times. Um, but as the BBC and the New York Times no longer have a monopoly, you know, as the gatekeepers are no longer as powerful as they once were, uh, you know, we should feel more free to speak our minds because that will attract its own audience. And uh, he used the example of Donald Trump. He was a guy, the first po major politician to come around and to speak his mind. And the gatekeepers didn't know how to handle it and they just mm -hmm. lost their minds. But ordinary Americans connected with it and elected the guy president. So I, I do believe that there is a very strong case to be made for taking a few more chances to say things that you know one regards as obviously true. Uh, one more note is that it, well, hasn't it just been so great the way that they banned the video from the press conferences with uh, Sean Spicer? So they have to have like a court reporter do the drawings. And I just love it because the only argument for it is like, but, but we want our fancy reporters to be household names too. And that's, that's not a reason. It's like, no, we, you don't need video of this. And you can perfectly well record it audio and write it in your papers, but you're not going to be on TV anymore. And I love it. Yeah, there's a, um, I just watched this new Netflix documentary that, that came out. Uh, it's about uh, the, the Gorka. Uh, Gorka lawsuit, and it's called Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press. And uh, Hulk Hogan's court case against Gorka Media sheds light on wealthy, powerful figures who challenge freedom of the press in order to silence critics. And the point of the, the documentary is just that, that, that rich people like Peter Thiel and Donald Trump are restricting you know, freedom of the press, and you know, Donald Trump saying all these horrible things about the press, you know, which is like you know, we're moving in danger of moving into an authoritarian dictatorship where there will no longer be freedom of the press. And if there isn't freedom of the press, then, you know, all the personal freedoms we've taken for granted will also be wiped out. And, and I just thought the documentary is so lacking in self-awareness. For instance, it quotes Elizabeth Spears, the, one of the co-founders of Gawker, you know, and how this is horrible, how the freedom of the press is being restricted. I remember... First of all, she's completely hit the wall. Like, it's really just painful to look at her now. Second, I remember when she came to Los Angeles about 10, 10 15 years ago, and uh, the people who were hosting her just found her really ungrateful. And and I, I, I emailed her about her because I was going to do a blog post on it, and she was just so concerned that this should not be made public. You know, that mm. this dispute should not be made public. And the documentary is completely lacking self-awareness. Like, it's all about how the press should be holding politicians accountable. But all these journalists who are talking would hate it if they were similarly held accountable. Like, the press wants to report on Donald Trump's private conversations. But if anyone published the private conversations of people in the press in the newsroom, you know, they would be absolutely horrified. They don't want to be held accountable. They don't want the same scrutiny that they are 
providing to others. And and this, again, complete lack of awareness, how the, the press is basically a bully that tries to destroy anyone who speaks out of against, you know, outside the lines of what the press considers to be acceptable conversation. So, you know, a little bit of race realism, you know, a discussion of the Jewish question, you know, anything like this, you know, the, the press just tries to absolutely destroy anyone who does that. And, and the documentary talks about how the press is all, you know, about seeking the truth and how we need the truth. But the press has no interest in reporting, you know, the truth of racial differences, that different peoples have different gifts, that different races have different average IQ levels, and how significant average IQ levels are for maintaining a civilization that, you know, you can't expect someone to graduate college if they don't have an IQ of at least 110. You can't expect someone to be a doctor or a lawyer unless they have an IQ of at least 120. And, and the, you know, the ramifications of that. So there are all sorts of examples of, of basic obvious truths that the press will just go out of its way to destroy anyone who brings those up. You know, like just say Jewish influence in the media, like Jews have an influence disproportionate to their 1.7% of the population in certain industries, such as the media, you know, such as finance, uh, you know, such as culture, such as art criticism. You know, it's obvious that we should be able to discuss it, just like we should we should be able to discuss, you know, Chinese influence or, or Russian influence. Like all this hysteria about Russia, you know, influencing America's political process, and it's obvious that... Uh, the amount that, that Russia influences our political process is considerably less than Israel does. And uh, someone made that point. I think it was uh, Glenn Greenwald or Julian Assange in, in a recent interview on Stephen Colbert, and it was cut. You know, when he mm-hmm. made that point, it was cut from the, from, the, from the broadcast. So, I mean, we should be able to talk about Jewish influence just like we should be able to talk about Russian influence or Muslim influence. But... You know, the, the, the Washington Post recently did the entire front forward was, uh, was a story on Russian influence on the 2016 election. Well, I dare them to do that on Jewish influence on some topic. They would never have the balls to do that. Well, it wouldn't serve their interest, would it? I mean, that's the thing is like I was watching those those one of those Hitler documentaries and I was kind of struck by the way that like the tipping point really was when they started talking about the Jewish press everything that's when really things got dangerous and like how far away are we from that i mean i maybe that will maybe that will not happen in america maybe we'll just continue to talk about like the press generally and it will go unstated or something but even if it goes unstated it seems like it might be a harbinger of sort of danger looming on the horizon it seems like to me and it, and it's it's fixable it's controllable you know all they have to do is just not be such slime but it seems like, what is it? R- ratings and a quest for power and whatever. What's that show called? Oh, the the Netflix show. It's a Netflix documentary. Uh, it's it's worth watching to subvert it. It's called Nobody Speak: Trials okay. of the Free Press. I mean, nobody speak. That's what the press wants to do to anyone who discusses the Jewish question or you know racial yeah. differences or yeah. you know differences between men or women. You know, wants to deplatform anyone who does that. But you know, here they think they're being repressed. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's, fair, it's, it's pharisaical. A, it, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I gotta I gotta go this week. I'm okay. kind of short on energy. I appreciate okay. you talking. Okay, man. I'm gonna carry on with the show um, okay. briefly. So thanks a lot. Have fun. See ya.
Uh, Casey. Okay, so it's just me and the blokes in the chat room, guys. So, so uh, spam me with with questions, and and I'll continue as long as you have questions. I I did make some some notes here. Uh, as far as co comedy being inherently subversive, there are things that smart people can get away with that less smart people are much more likely to get into trouble with. So. You know, comedy is one such thing. It, it used to be, say, a tradition in Europe that if you wanted to discuss uh, the existence of God, if you wanted to discuss atheism, you sent all the servants out. Because if the servants came to believe that there wasn't a God, they would be much more likely to steal from you. And so uh, I, I do think you know, there's something to that. Adam Smith, in his book, The Wealth of Nations, makes the point that there are all sorts of vices that the middle and upper classes can get away with that will likely completely destroy someone in the working class. So, for instance, it seemed like Jack Nicholson has been able to handle, you know, his rampant promiscuity, his uh, use of drugs, and he was able to get away with it. But if, you know, some person with an IQ under 100, you know, indulged in a lot of crack, <laughs> you know, indulged in, in promiscuity, much more likely to get devastating results. And I think that the same thing holds for for comedy. Uh, let me just go to the questions in, in the chat room. Russia is the new and old scapegoat created by Pale of Settlement Jews, the neocons who still hate Russia. Yeah, I think Jews of Eastern European origins tend to much more have a, have a chip on their shoulders about the Goyim in general and you know, Russia in, in particular and Poland in particular. Uh, and on the one hand, this is completely understandable, you know, because of the Holocaust, because of, uh, of Jewish suffering in Eastern Europe. And on the other hand, it's it's an obvious uh, it's an obvious flaw in thinking. You know, you just can't act on your instincts. That you know, for instance, that the Goyim are always you know the bad guys. It's a really destructive instinct, and we we should be able to openly discuss the intellectual tendencies of various groups. And for instance, one intellectual tendency of Jews is to think many steps ahead. And this can be good or bad. I'll, I'll give you a story for, for an example. Uh, there are two Jews on the subway in New York and uh, Jew A asks Jew B for the time. Jew B refuses to answer. Jew A asks again, Jew B refuses to answer. Jew A finally like grabs the guy and says, hey, why won't you tell me the time? And Jew B answers, well, if I tell you the time, we'll get to talking. If we get to talking, I'll find I like you. I'll invite you home to Shabbos. You'll come to my place for Shabbos. You'll meet my daughter. You'll want to marry her. And I don't want my daughter to marry a guy who doesn't have a watch. So that's an example of Jews, you know, thinking many, many points in advance. And so... For instance, I think the main reason that we can't publicly discuss IQ differences between races is that Jewish intellectuals inherently fear that will be bad for the Jews. That if the non-Jews realize that Ashkenazi Jews on average are, say, 10 IQ points smarter than them, they'll resent that and they'll come for the Jews, you know, with pitchforks. Uh, you know, Jews, Jewish intellectuals will often think many points in advance, like anything that, that uh, points out group differences, whether it be in IQ or in, in criminality or other proclivities, 
that's inherently going to be bad for the Jews because Jews inherently have a fear of being pointed out as different because that has often led to persecution or dis discrimination. Uh, you know, Jews will often think about all public policy matters, you know, is it good for the Jews? Is it good for Israel? Okay, going to the, to the chat room. What should a high IQ Jew do with his life when living among lower IQ white Gentiles? Well, higher IQ people by and large tend to be a blessing. You know, you're much more likely to get your wallet back if you drop it in Beverly Hills than if you drop it in South Central. You're much less likely to get raped if you walk through Beverly Hills at night than in South Central. So high IQ is a measure of the capacity for abstract thought and the capacity for abstract thought correlates with morality. So you'll notice that higher IQ people tend to have, naturally have more empathy. Higher IQ, the smarter the person you deal with, the more likely he is to understand where you're coming from. Now, on the other hand, you never want to screw over a high IQ person because they'll exact their vengeance in uh, much more thoughtful and effective means than a low IQ person. But by and large, high IQ people will pay far more in taxes than they require in government services, while low IQ people will take far more in government services than they will pay in taxes. You know, high IQ people develop cures for cancer, they develop scientific and medical breakthroughs, they start businesses and employ people. Uh, high IQ people overwhelmingly are a great benefit to the world. And low IQ people, you know, drag society down. Just think about driving. Like in, in almost every area, you know, we know that low IQ people have more accidents than high IQ people. Life is an IQ test. So low IQ people have more accidents. Then think about the consequences for your commute. If one person makes one stupid decision, it can tie up a commute to 10,000 people. And it costs 10,000 people an hour. You know, just wreak havoc. So think how much better it would be if we restricted driver's licenses to, every, to only people who say graduated high school or to only people with an IQ of 100 or above, we would have far fewer traffic accidents, our commutes would be much smoother, and our life would be better. What if we then required licenses to have children? So only people with IQs, say over 110, would be able to get a license to have children. Everyone else would be sterilized. Uh, I think it would make a much better world. I wonder if conservatives or far-right people just think more in advance the liberal carpe diem type of people. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I think high IQ people see the future much more clearly than low IQ people, and that, that applies equally to liberals as conservatives. For instance, you know, liberals tend to lead very conservative lives. You know, high IQ liberals work hard, study hard. You know, they get married before they have children. You know, they make sure they have health insurance and car insurance. They lead responsible, conservative lives. So I don't think seeing the future is a difference between conservatives and liberals. I think seeing the future clearly is a difference between higher IQ types and lower IQ types. Uh, who's more likely to just pursue a life of hedonism? You know, sex tourism, clubbing, you know, status signaling. 
I think it's people who don't have so many traditional ties. So the more traditional ties you have, such as to family, to community, to, to a religion, uh, the less likely you are to engage in hedonism. I noticed that was one of the distinguishing characteristics of people in the porn industry, is that they did not tend to have many ties. Like if you love your parents, you're not going to perform in porn because you're not going to want to create shame for your family. If you love your parents, you're not going to want to lead a dissolute hedonistic life because you don't want to be creating shame for your family. If you love your community, your religious or ethnic community, you're not going to want to lead a dissolute life because you're not going to want to shame your community. You're not going to want to bring them down. Instead, you're going to want them to have a high value, have a, have a positive perspective on you. And so I think that's why morality not just correlates with the capacity for abstract thought, because the capacity for abstract thought correlates with empathy and morality is basically empathy. Morality also correlates with your ties to other people. You know, the more bonded you are to other people, the less likely you are to behave carelessly and viciously because you're going to want the good opinion of people who are important to you. So, so morality is a function of the capacity for abstract thought, which is measured by IQ and for the security of your attachment. Now, do you form secure attachments to people who are good for you? Uh, people like that are much less likely to do destructive things. So, yes, I know that uh, James Watson had to apologize for saying that he's inherently gloomy about the prospects of Africa because Africans have such a low average IQ. Uh, there's a point, sarcasm is against the Bible and non-existent in Asian culture. Uh, I think that's basically true. There isn't much humor in traditional Jewish texts, in, including the Bible. Uh, it's been said that the funniest verse in the Jewish prayer book in the Siddur is the verse that says, uh, Torah studying, Torah scholars increase peace in the world. It, it's funny because if you know Torah scholars, they're generally engaged in controversy, you know, with other Torah scholars. They're always arguing. So, uh, you know, Jews argue a lot. You know, is one really going to say that the Jews, you know, increase peace wherever they go? Well, we're we're very expressive people, and the Jews in a Gentile world will generally increase social tensions because Jews keep the Sabbath. They keep their own laws. They keep dietary laws. They, to the extent that a Jew is observant of uh, his tradition's laws, he's going to increase tension among uh, you know, the people who have to interact with him. So, you know, just dealing with people who are different it just inherently increases tension, reduces social trust, uh, reduces social cohesion. So Pepe notes, my dentist is Jewish, and while she does a good job, I wish she would stop constantly talking while cleaning my teeth. So Jewish, yes, Jews, Jews tend to be more expressive of their emotions than, say, you know, Northern Europeans who tend to be a more stolid. Uh, there's a question about the video of John Stewart saying, this isn't your damn 
country. He's basically saying it to white people. Well, you know, white people did create the United States of America. At the time of the Declaration of Independence, the country was 85% Anglo. And as the percentage of Americans going increasingly less Anglo, you know, the more social problems we've had because Anglos tend to make the best citizens. It's, it's just a, a development of uh, evolution that, that Northern Europeans developed in a hostile landscape where it made sense to want to be able to cooperate and trust strangers and where the, the harsh environment did not permit you to live in extended kinship clans. So you know, Northern Europeans tend to place great reliance upon oaths and, and upon creating moral societies. That's unique, and that's why uh, Anglo countries have traditionally been high trust, low corruption countries. And I can't think of any Roman Catholic country that comes close to this, to what Anglos created in England, Canada, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand. So I think I'm going to wrap things up if uh, there are no more questions in the chat room. I'll just take a, a scan here. Uh, oh, yeah, I want to talk about cheating versus Hebrews learning. So one of the great things about being Jewish is that you don't have to be alone. Like You have a community. Almost anywhere you go in the world, you can find a Jewish community. And Jews will often cooperate with each other and, and be cohesive. So, for instance, I remember I have a Gentile friend who complained that when a Jew would come to buy a home in, in Australia, they would always bring an accountant, a lawyer, and other Jews with them. While if a Gentile wanted to buy a home, it would just be the couple or just the Gentile as an individual. So Jews tend to do things in community. So you know, what Gentiles might call cheating, you know, Jews might call heverusa learning. So no Jew need ever be alone when he's taking a class or trying to get certified in something. He can often rely on his community, on, on fellow Jews to help him out, to, to give him the answers, to help him with you know, test preparation or in just meeting the requirements to get certified in something. If you had to leave town with your family, who would you miss? And I asked this of a couple of friends who lived in their communities, Gentile friends who lived in their communities for 30, 40 years. And there was no one that they would miss, that they would miss strongly. And I just thought that's so sad. I don't want to live that way. You know, one of the great things about being Jewish is that living in community, you form these intense bonds with people that if you were to leave, you would miss them intensely. Like you really get connected with other people in, in particularly Orthodox Judaism. And uh, it's just something that I love about Orthodox Judaism in particular. You, you go to synagogue every day. You go to a Talmud class every day. You know, you say the prayers in the morning and evening with, with the same people. And you can't help, you know, if you have any degree of sanity, can't help but form strong bonds with people. And and life without intense bonds with other people is just, you know, it's just not life. <laughs> so. Casey wants to know, what's the funniest scene in Mel Gibson's Braveheart? Yeah, I can't think, think of one. You know, when, when uh, people are dedicated to a cause, they, to a holy cause, they 
don't tend to spend a lot of time, you know, making jokes, and they certainly don't tend to make jokes undercutting their their cause. Uh, comment in the chat room. I notice conservative types are more sincere. They they're more likely to be bad liars and not good at getting along with people they're unfamiliar and uncomfortable with. Yes, that that definitely rings true to me. Uh, Pepe says, do you think the Jewish question would be less of a problem if the vast majority of Jews were orthodox instead of secular? So I think that's a great question. It's one that I've spent hundreds of hours thinking about. So let me give you one argument in favor of what you just suggested. And this is the argument. God chose the Jews to be the master race of mankind. However, he soon realized that this would have cruel consequences for the less intelligent Goyim of creation. So to protect them from the depredations of the Jews while still providing free will to one and all, God gave the Jews the Torah, both written and oral, by which they might be fenced in. Rest assured that those Jews who live today on the Torah Chorale no threat to the gentle Gentiles of the world. It is the secular liberal Jew with his notions of Marxism and tolerance of the sodomite and the transgendered, creator both of socialism and feminism, who is the mortal enemy of the Gentile world. I say this in the hope that when you Goyim awake from your deep moral stupor, an increasingly unlikely event, begin dealing with the Jew problem in your midst, you will leave me alone. I hope this clears everything up. So that's an argument in favor of Jews becoming Orthodox, reducing tension with, with Gentiles around them. On the other hand, is social identity theory. And that says the more you identify with your group, the more likely you are to have negative views of our group. So the more Jewish the Jews get, such as by becoming Orthodox, the more they will separate from the non-Jews around them, and the more likely they are to have negative views of the non-Jews around them. So for instance, secular Jews, tend to have much more positive views of, of Gentiles than do Orthodox Jews. And there's, there are these gradations when you go from secular to reform, at least the reformed Jew has in general a stronger Jewish identity than the completely secular Jew. And therefore he will be more tied into Jewish history into the stories about how Gentiles have persecuted Jews. And so the, the reformed Jew is probably a little more likely to have some negative feelings about non-Jews than the completely secular Jew. And then the conservative Jew is you know, somewhat a traditional Jew. He's more likely to have negative feelings about Gentiles on average than the reformed Jew. Then Orthodox Jew, you know, the modern Orthodox Jew is more likely to have negative feelings about Gentiles than the conservative Jew, but the traditional Orthodox Jew is more likely to have negative feelings about non-Jews than the modern Orthodox Jew. So the more Orthodox the Jew, the less he will interact with non-Jews except to make money, except in business, you know, the more he will follow his particular traditional laws and practices, you know, the more afraid he will be of, of non-Jews. And so that will create social tensions. You know, the, the more orthodox a Jew, the less likely in America he'll be to celebrate Thanksgiving, to you know, put an American flag outside his home, or even to identify as an American. The more orthodox the Jew, the more likely he is to identify as Jewish first, you know, American second. He may even have no American identity. He may not even be able to speak English very well. If he goes to a very orthodox school where the primary language of instruction is Yiddish, he's, he's not going to be able to speak English very well, and therefore he will be separated from 
uh, the rest of Americans, and he'll be much more likely to have to go on welfare. So, you know, there are very strong arguments why the more orthodox a Jew, the more tension that that could create with non-Jews. So I'm really not sure of the answer. Uh, question in the chat room, people who have never been part of a strong community do not understand community. And for this reason, we cannot reconcile with liberals. That's, uh, that's a uh, interesting point. So in this week's uh, Torah portion, we talk about the red heifer and how this red cow must have absolutely no blemish before it's sacrificed. And I noticed that uh, people are, are comfortable with the pursuit of excellence in sports and in art and in many arenas of life. But when it comes to religion, they, they often expect there should be no standards. I, on Sabbath, this uh, fairly secular Jewish woman came up to me wearing pants and a very casual outfit. And she asked me, oh, how should I dress if I want to come to an Orthodox synagogue on the Sabbath. So I, I, you know, should we wear dresses? And I said, well, yeah, your daughters should wear dresses, but your boys should not wear dresses. But uh, how would you dress if you're going to meet the queen? How would you dress if you had an honored seat at the president's inauguration? How would you dress if you're going to the opera? That's how you should dress if you're going to church or synagogue on, on, you know, on the Sabbath. Uh, I once had a girlfriend and I, who had been raised Orthodox. And I asked her to come to shul with me on Shabbos and she asked if she could wear jeans. Now, no, you know, no traditional Orthodox Jew, at least in the diaspora, is going to wear jeans to, to shul on, on Shabbos. And a few days before, we'd gone to the opera. And so I said to her, you know, dress as though you were going to the opera. Would you wear jeans to the opera? And of course, she got upset and she never ended up coming to shul with me and you know we broke up a few weeks later when it comes to priests serving in the holy temple they too must be without blemish now a shul does not need a stutterer as a rabbi and not everything in life needs to be handicap accessible uh, though the red cow in this week's torah portion uh which is numbers 19 to 22 it acts as, as a disinfectant when a sacrifice it takes away impurity that's kind of the goal of my blogging to take away impurity, you know, to shine a light that acts as a disinfectant on what's going on. So I'll take the impurity on myself for discussing all these taboo topics. Yeah, so Casey asked, did you ever see those videos on YouTube of a guy who does interviews in Jerusalem and asking Jews, like, what do you think of Gentiles? And... Uh, and the people say, uh, no, we don't think of Gentiles. And uh, I'm thinking about one by Max. Uh, anyway, it's just like Jews saying all these horrible things about Gentiles, in particular Barack Obama. Like I think they use the, the N word on Barack Obama. Um, yeah, because Jews in Jerusalem are going to have a pretty strong Jewish identity. And the stronger your in-group identity, the more likely you are to say, negative things about our groups when you feel relaxed. Like that's like the great thing about going to an Orthodox synagogue is that 
you can go there and you can be a bigot about outside groups and there's generally not going to be any pushback because you're in a safe place with your in-group and you, you can feel free and safe to say everything negative or fearful that you want to say about our groups. Like you can go to an orthodox synagogue and you can very happily have a conversation about Schwarzes, about blacks, now that can last an hour. Like they're just endlessly entertaining from, from a traditional Jewish perspective. And you can say all sorts of things that you could never get away with in, uh, uh, in, in normal life. So the video I'm thinking about was done by the guy who used to be an assistant to Hillary Clinton. He used to write for the New Yorker. Then he went to work for, for Hillary Clinton. Well, it's his son who, who's done a lot of videos and, and articles very critical of Israel. And that's because he's a leftist before he's a Jew. So if you're a Jew before you're a leftist, then, then you're going to put you know, what's good for the Jews ahead of leftist ideology. But if you're a leftist, if you're a Jewish leftist who's more leftist than Jew, then you're going to put left-wing ideology before Jewish identity. So you're going to find ethno-nationalism appalling, even when it's Jewish ethno-nationalism. Because from the Jewish perspective, from the left-wing perspective, you know, ethnicity, race doesn't matter. It's, it's social class. It's privilege that, that matters. So that's, that's the difference between a Jewish leftist is Jewish first, leftist second, or Jewish leftist who is leftist first, the Jewish second. And I don't regard either either perspective as just you know inherently wrong or bad. It just depends on where your values are. So there's a lot of funny parts in this week's Torah portion. One of them is that like the recurrent bitter complaining, being recurrent bitter humor of the Jews. So take Numbers chapter 20, verses 3 to 5. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died and our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. There's no internet access, nor is there any water to drink. <laughs> it's just hilarious complaining. And then how do Moses and Aaron react? They walk away and they fall on their faces. You know, it doesn't doesn't seem like impressive leadership. <laughs> you know, the people complain that you walk away and fall on your face. But Moses and Aaron are just worn down by all the kvetching, by all the complaining. Now, most of us tend to be nice to other people when we're feeling good. But the more pressure we get under, our kindliness, generally speaking, diminishes. And I think this also goes for groups. When groups are prospering and secure, it's very easy for them to be you know, polite and nice to our groups. But when your group is in decline, under pressure, and in danger of losing sovereignty of the very countries that you have created, which is the situation of whites in the West, you can expect whites in the West to gradually increase in their in-group devotion and to be increasingly less kind to our groups. You know, genocides don't come out of nowhere. They come out of extreme life and death competition for scarce resources, such as for land, for water, or for national sovereignty. So I expect Europeans, for example, to fight back against the Muslim invaders. You know, I expect a lot more anti-Muslim incidents. 
expect a lot more anti-Jewish incidents as you know, white Gentiles come to discover that they have an identity, that they have in-group loyalty, and that they have negative feelings about outgroups. And the more stress and pressure a group is under or an individual is under, you know, the less you can expect them to be kind to outsiders. So Moses speaks in Numbers chapter 20, verse 15, about how our fathers went down to Egypt and we dwelt in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. And there's no mention here about how, how the Jews afflicted the Egyptians, how the God of the Jews afflicted the Egyptians. It's like not a lot of empathy here because Moses is under pressure. So he doesn't have time or energy to be empathetic for the Egyptians who lost all of their firstborn, who were humiliated, who had their army destroyed in the Red Sea and who suffered through the 10 plagues. So that's just how life works. When you're under pressure, you can't be expected to be really empathic to strangers around you. So in Numbers chapter 20, verse 18, Edom says, Edom says to Moshe and Israel, you shall not pass through my land lest I come out against you with the sword. And Moshe replied, bro, it's the current year. And another Israelite added, my wife's son really wants to come through. Can't we all get along? Guess what? These, these uh, calls to unity don't always work. Now, if you're dealing with people who have a strong sense of their own in-group identity, of their own in-group interests, telling them that it's the current year or that your wife's son really wants to pass through is just not going to cut it. So it is a shame that Edom did not let the Jews pass through because think of how the Jews could have enriched a dome, could have taught them about how to run a central bank, could have taught them about the joys and benefits of multiculturalism, could have talked to them about sodomy, holiness, same-sex marriage, trannies in the bathroom. And so you know why you don't hear about Edomites today? Because they didn't allow themselves to be enriched by Jews. Instead, they clung to their spears and to their religion and their narrow parochial ways, and they died out because they weren't willing to adapt to modernity and to multiculturalism. I'm thinking that the Torah should have made clear that not all Canaanites are kidnappers, that not all Edomites are nationalist haters and bigots. But uh, the, the Torah doesn't have any problem with making national stereotypes, and it doesn't feel any need to say not all Egyptians you know, uh, persecutors. So as an Alexander Technique teacher, I often sense that when I see somebody's, I get a sense of how they talk to themselves. Because usually somebody's unnecessary tension patterns kind of reveal how vindictive they are towards themselves. I think you know, most of that compression and compressions like this, pulling yourself down and in. You know, most of our compression results from a punitive attitude towards yourself. And I find the people who are at ease with themselves generally don't have a lot of unnecessary body tension and they generally move fairly fluidly. While I rarely find someone who's you know, terribly compressed has got terrible use of themselves, who's you know, just all pulled down. I rarely find that they're a joy to be around. I, I, I rarely find that, you know, that they uh, are at ease with themselves. 
so they generally tend to find life just you know too much so they have to try to make themselves as tight and as small as possible so that people won't won't hurt them if you're basically sane and sober and somebody's confusing you the chances are that person's either lying to you or manipulating you so if you're in reality and living in reality means you're able to track your emotions and therefore you're able to notice you know, other people's emotions and where they're at now if you're basically sane and sober and then you're confused by your spouse or by a friend chances are that person who's confusing you is lying to you or manipulating you so after the new york times this morning with my breakfast and above the fold there are three stories about gays it's just like a little too much like there's a story on the top 13 lgbt shows on netflix and amazon like and another story about how gay neighborhoods are under attack as non-gays move in Ugh, it's too much okay so southern baptists at their convention have condemned nationalism and the alt-right which is you know ridiculous because southern baptists the very reason they're southern baptists is that they separated themselves from other baptists because they supported slavery in the confederacy 160 years ago 50 years ago the southern baptists overwhelmingly supported segregation so i guess now they're saying that all christians that came before them were just wrong you know and that they now have been enlightened to to the truth about nationalism okay i think i'm at the end of today's show uh thanks for hanging with me and uh we'll do some more torah talk another day